Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 48th episode, it's the return of Chris Sims, co-host of War Rocket Ajax, Movie Fighters, Sailor Business, and Xena Warrior Business, and co-writer of X-Men 92, Deadpool, Bad Blood, Sword Quest, and many other comics. This episode's a little different, and it's going to be the start of something kind of new for me. It turned out that Chris hadn't done the reading, and due to a lack of sleep from the baby, I wasn't prepared either. And as a result, we had a totally off-the-cuff, unstructured, unprepared conversation. And the results were, well, they were great. And it gave me an idea. From now on, for returning guests, I'm going to be keeping this structured lack of structure. And I think you're going to like it. I'll call it The Math of You Returns. And just like with Teen Titans, you'll tell it's one of them because the intro music will be different. Along the course of this conversation, we talk about the hidden secrets of pop music, why Chris is wrong about G.I. Joe the movie, and what comic book creators never lost their edge. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on The Math of You. We join this conversation already in progress. So for those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? Well, my name is Chris Sims. I'm a writer, mostly these days of comic books, but of other things around the web as well. I'm delightful. (laughs) I'm just an endless fucking garden of delights. That's me. I got a lot of podcasts. I I do a lot of writing and I got a lot of podcasts, just like everyone else with an internet connection. Yeah, astute listeners will know it will go rocketing back to episode 18 when Chris came on and we talked about NES games and we talked about adaptations of films and we talked about the Lone Wolf game book series. So Chris, we're going to skip the usual intro stuff and where we'd normally say, where did you grow up and what sort of kid were you? And we'll go straight into your topic. So what was it you wanted to talk about today? I was not aware I had to prepare the topic, Lucas. I thought we were just going to have a good time. (laughs) It was in the reading, Chris. Did you not do the reading? (laughs) I did not do the reading. I was I was just like ready to ready to rock and roll. I was ready to wing it. We were on War Rocket Ajax this week, and we were talking to to the good pal James D'Amato about his new Kickstarter, and we talked about how the motto of that show should be: "Eh, "We'll just wing it." (laughs) <laughs> because that is that is how we do things. Fuck it, we'll do it live. The War Rocket Ajax story. Yep. <laughs> All right, then. Look, let's just swing it then. So what have you been... Uh, I know how we're going to start this. Because okay. this, this is probably going to be a looser episode. We've been talking for about 30 minutes about Final Crisis and wrestling and Transformers comics. So things have gotten a little bit wild. Chris, I'd like you to tell me how you got into the Wu-Tang Clan. Ooh, that's, that's an interesting one. That's one I was unprepared for. I don't know. I think I was working at the comic book store when I got into Wu-Tang. I have a, a weird, a weird history with music, you know? I was a kid who was not into music 
for a real long time, which I was relieved to find out, like, as an adult, that that was more common than I thought it was, because I just thought I was a complete weirdo. But it wasn't until I was, like, 12, 13 that I really started, like, listening to music and paying attention to it. And so, like, when I was in middle school and I first started listening to music that I picked out, you know, not just, like, what my mom and dad had on in the car when I started like actively making music choices, I bought like a lot of soundtracks and I mm-hmm. bought like a lot of like compilation discs because I felt like you get more songs by more people that way. You know, like if you buy the Pulp Fiction soundtrack, you get all those, all those songs by different people instead of just getting one album by only one band. Like why would anyone do that? Singles, baby singles are where it's at. You also get all those little snippets of dialogue that come on in the car stereo as the tape is playing. Oh, yeah. And make everyone in the car really uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. oh so you've heard the From Dust Till Dawn soundtrack. And the Reservoir Dogs soundtrack. And the, the Reservoir Dogs soundtrack. soundtrack. <laughs> yep. When I bought, like, albums by bands, like, it was usually, like, like metal. Like, I, I got, like, really into, to, like, Metallica and Megadeth and, and Anthrax as, like, a like a teen. I guess, I guess Anthrax is kind of, like, rap metal. But then in high school... I got into 70s funk really hard because I was one of those rural white kids with an obsession with exploitation movies and like 70s like cinema, which again, I think is more common than I thought it was. Like I was certainly the, the only kid in my high school who was like really into like, well, I guess I should say I was the only white kid in my high school who was like really into Superfly and Shaft, you know, like nerdy kind of antisocial loser white kid. But that in turn led me to late 80s hip hop, which is when I started really getting into stuff like Public Enemy around like 2000 or so was when I started getting into like 36 Chambers. Because, you know, it's, like, it's almost perfectly made for that kind of kid where, you know, you, you think you have way more of a handle on the, the culture and the, the references and the idiom of like early and mid 90s hip hop than you actually do. But there's also like, oh, it's all like Kung Fu movie stuff, which is another thing I was mm-hmm. obsessed with, like 70s Hong Kong movies. So that's kind of how I got into Wu-Tang. And it turns out that 36 Chambers is like legit one of the best albums ever. So you kind of looked at there. <laughs> Yeah, and that kind of, like, that and, you know, It Takes a Nation of Millions and Fear of a Black Planet, like, those were what really sort of started me on the path of, like, paying attention to, like, current hip-hop and, like, being into current hip-hop. Because, again, like, coming from South Carolina, one time I was hanging out with friends and I went to go pick someone up. I think it was, what is it, like, the second Eminem album's big single? Not the one off the Slim Shady LP. The, was without I created me a monster. The show. Without me, yeah. The one that has the Batman and Robin video with Dr. Dre. Yeah, that's the one. That was on when I went into my house to hang out with my friends. And then three hours later, when I got back into the car to like drive somebody home, it was on again. (laughs) So like, that's the only like mainstream radio, like hip hop that I could hear. So like going to like the used CD store and trying to get a better survey of stuff was interesting, but that's how I ended up getting into, into the Wu-Tang. I think... Because here's the thing. I think when you come to something, specifically music, I think, without a frame of reference, you kind of latch on to things that you've either seen or that are, you know, tangentially related. And then you start to fill in the gaps. And I mean, like, Mm -hmm. I've had the same, like, rap playlist on my Spotify for since I've had a Spotify. And for a while, it was just, okay, what do I remember them playing at school dances? So there was DMX and there was Nelly and there was some Fugees and there was, you know, some later Will Smith stuff. And then every time I heard something, I would just throw it in there. And I eventually had to change the name of the 
playlist from rap in the 90s to just rap whenever. And then, (laughs) like, now I've got this playlist that's as long as any of my other playlists. And I'll just be like, oh, you know, new Kendrick. Yes, throwing that in there. Oh, oh, I've heard this song that Nicki Minaj is guesting on. Yep, throwing that in there. And I will 100% credit my girlfriend Kimiko because before we met, I didn't have a car. And so I would very rarely listen to commercial radio. And since we started dating, she would drive everywhere and just would have the radio on. And because she worked in TV, she was very up to the minute with what was coming out and what was popular. And I managed to, you know, step back into the world of pop music that I'd kind of issued for a few years being, you know, too cool for that sort of thing which is, of course, a trap that a lot of people fall into. And yeah, there's a lot of good music that's out there at the moment. Well, that's that's also the weird thing about, like, that's a weird function of nostalgia. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the things you were too cool for it, when you were 14 become, like, very comforting 20 years later. Yeah. Like, <laughs> at the time, like, God, when, like, Baby One More Time was out and, like, Backstreet's Back, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I was, I was, like, 17, and like I was like I was a fan of I, I really liked Baby One More Time, but like the boy band stuff was like it like I'm like that boy band stuff that's bullshit, you know. But then going back to it, like it's so evocative of a specific time, and then you listen to it and you realize like actually you know pop music is good, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that you know you have that with songs you remember snippets of, you know, and songs that you you don't think you remember as well as you do until they're on the radio or they're at karaoke and you're like singing you realize that you literally know every word of backstreet's back because you were in drama club and so of (laughs) course you do which was my experience it's just one of those things yeah it's like the songs that like and i'm sure parents can back me up it's like you sing random snippets of song to a baby to try and get that baby to calm down and then you realize Mm -hmm. you know every word to tainted love (laughs) And it's something that you've never, ever thought about before as, yes, I've heard this song enough that I know first first, second first, chorus, second chorus, and the bridge. And I'm just like, wait, I I guess I do. And there's a whole bunch of songs like that. So it's one of those things where Deadpool puts DMX on its soundtrack and suddenly it's like, oh yes, I do in fact know at least the first half of X going to give it to you. Which, did it actually make it onto your wedding playlist? Or was that X No, it didn't. It Ah. didn't. That one didn't make it. I did get We Have All the Time in the World from On Her Majesty's Secret Service, and <laughs> I think I might have gotten all-time high. No, it, was, it wasn't all-time high, because we couldn't find a good version of it. We only found the pan flute version of all-time yeah. high on Spotify ah. for the playlist. Okay, okay, okay. So let me just get this straight. Okay, yes. If you're going to thread the needle and pick an available version of all-time high, what mm-hmm. kind of bumblebee flight path does that dart have to travel to land on pan flute? I don't see that's I don't know I don't like it was so weird and I almost wanted to like put it on the playlist because of how bizarre it was but I'm like you know the wedding playlist is not the time to do that I don't think (laughs) yeah nobody wants that joke single in there (laughs) we did get nobody does it better good on there those were the two James Bond themes that I convinced Aiden to put on the playlist nobody was busting a move to the living daylights no because (laughs) those aren't Love songs. We have no. all the time in the world and all time high and nobody does it better are love songs, which is what you need. Somebody asked if I had Christmas Baby Please Come Home on the wedding playlist, if we had put it on there rather, because that is like, it's it's the best song. Also, Chris, it's, it's the song you're known for. You bring it up at every opportunity. Yeah, because it's the best song. <laughs> 
it was funny. Like I used the old Zencaster soundboard on the Christmas episodes of Ajax, and instead of starting with the normal Ajax theme, like for all of December, and I think a piece of November too. Like we started with the opening to Christmas Baby Please Come Home, and around about the fourth week of that, Matt was like, "I keep expecting it to be something different," and I was like, "Why? <laughs> Why would I play something different? Why would I play, by definition, an inferior song?" What? Why would I iterate? <laughs> Yeah, like, it's not milk, it doesn't go bad after a month, it's still real good. <laughs> but somebody asked, I was like, no, like, we obviously didn't put that song on the playlist, because that song is about two people who are apart. That song is about, you know, it, it's a plaintive yearning song. It's a song about, you know, I, I wish you were here, but you're somewhere else, whether through, you know, the circumstances of, at the time, like, what would have been, like, the Vietnam War, or because we're broken up. Like, it's a beautiful song. It's the most beautiful song, but it's not thematically appropriate. But we did have All I Want for Christmas is You on the wedding <laughs> playlist. Of course you did. That's a love song. And see, if Aiden were here, I would ask Aiden how much Fall Out Boy went on that list. But thing is, I imagine a lot of Fall Out Boy songs are also about yearning. I honestly don't remember. I'll tell you what. I mean, I, I can load up Spotify. Go for it. See if I can find the playlist. But yeah, like the, putting that playlist together was very interesting because it turns out that my idea of love songs are very different from Aiden's idea of love songs, which <laughs> are probably closer to a normal person's idea of love songs. <laughs> The funny thing was, like, we got married at a bar. We just left their computer logged in, and they kept that playlist going for, like, two more days. Because it's a very, very good playlist. There are some playlists that I've kept from other people, like former guest of the show, Margaret H. Wilson, had a bachelorette party playlist that was meant to be playing in the limo they got for their bachelorette party. And it's, like, unequivocally the best, like, beginning of the weekend playlist that I've ever heard. It's just one of those ones where everyone is, like, a banger, but not so much that they take over what you're doing. So if you're putting it on in the car, driving home from work on a Friday afternoon, it's, like, perfect. It's, like, just threading that needle. We literally added, in parentheses, bangers only to the end of our wedding playlist, which is very good. That's one of those phonogram things where it's like, you know, only girl singers, dancing required. Yeah. Bangers only, man. There's a lot of playlists named bangers only. I'm going to pick one of these at random and see uh, see what's on this bangers only. Well, I don't know any of these songs because I'm old. <laughs> well, here, I'm dropping in that Bachelorette's Final Bash one, which, by the way, starts out with Mandy Moore and then goes to the Supremes, Aretha Franklin. No Doubt, Jackson 5, Stevie Wonder, and it goes on from there. I mean, there. That's, that's good stuff. And just saying. It's good stuff. A lot of Beyonce on, on this playlist. Yeah, the bangers only. You want some bangers <laughs> or not? Oh, man, this is good. Oh, ooh, this this has got some good ones. Yep. Can't Hurry Love, that is a... Yeah. A, Can't Hurry Love was also on our wedding playlist. That was a good one. It better be, damn it. And then out of nowhere, every once in a while, you'll get like... Poor Unfortunate Souls just spliced in, which works better than you think it would. We had a real debate over Hey Ya, because, again, that it's a breakup song, but it's also... It's also, like, an incredibly dancey song. Like, it's... It's also, like, it gets the dance floor moving. Lucas, here's the thing nobody tells you. If you've got any listeners on the younger side, I'm going to tell you something that adults keep from you. How about rules? And nobody tells you that. This goes back to like our discussion of like radio, right? Mm -hmm. And how the further away you get from an era, the further away you get from a year, the more it becomes hammered out to standards, which is a very interesting process to me because, you know, it happens across media. There are plenty of TV shows from like the 80s that nobody goes and revisits, from the 90s that nobody goes and revisits. Who's, I mean, I've been a nostalgia blogger for 
12 years, but like, who's going back to watch Shasta McNasty and how would you even do it? Like, that's not on Hulu. I think Living Singles on Netflix, but yeah, I know what you mean. But it happens with music because radio stations specialize in oldies. And as you know, there's a sliding timescale. The weirdest thing is that like the stations that played oldies when I was in high school, like 20 years ago, still basically play the same songs. They play like, you know, 50s, 60s, sometimes like early 70s stuff. Classic rock stations still play like 70s and 80s rock. Oh, you mean the greatest hits of the 70s, 80s, 90s and now? No. Well, see, that's the other thing. You get those stations that, you know, like the 70s, 80s, 90s, and today, which is like hilarious because we're like 17 years away from the 90s, but it gets hammered down, right? Like you hear the same, you know, you hear like three Pink Floyd songs and that's it. You hear like the Aerosmith version of Walk This Way. The only ABBA song that is like extant in the world that you're likely to encounter in the wild is Dancing Queen, and Dancing Queen kind of sucks. I mean, it's fine, Mm -hmm. but Dancing Queen doesn't, like, hold up to repeated listening. Nobody tells you that ABBA is amazing. That, like, The Tiger is an amazing song. Gimme, Gimme, Gimme is, like, so fucking good. Like, nobody tells you. Gimme, Gimme, Gimme is a banger. True story. Yeah, Gimme, Gimme, like, there's so many. To the point where Madonna Madonna sampled that song. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Take a chance on me is dope as hell. Waterloo, dope as hell. Lay all your love on me. That's on the wedding playlist because it's a fucking fire banger. Voulez-vous? Oh, there's so many good ABBA songs and nobody tells you about them. I think one of the problems and thing is I, again, I was in the exact same boat until I came to Australia where ABBA has like a secondary following in the LGBTQ community because you have revival shows every week, every month for drag shows. And there was even an incredibly named Australian ABBA tribute band called Bjorn Again. Oh, uh, that's that's very good. It's exceptional. And so like Australian TV will always be doing these, you know, top 20 shows to of nostalgia. And ABBA will get in there. And then, yeah, you realize that they were a pop music juggernaut. Yeah, they're incredible. Like, and that opening of Gimme, Gimme, Gimme is like so dope. <laughs> oh, it's... So good. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's in my head now. You've done it. I'm like literally playing it right now while we talk. <laughs> oh, those violins just kicked in? Hell yes. There's a, a hold local. Up, hold up, here comes. There's here a comes. local, and this is maybe the most inner west kind of hipster thing I've ever said. There is a local steamed muffin shop. Uh-huh. Their outdoor tables are all ABBA album covers that have been like shellacked to the tables, like decoupage. And so you just sit there and you're looking at all these amazing 70s covers as you wait for your bespoke English, homemade English muffin with a froached egg, which is a poached egg where they fry the bottom of it so it's crispy. Mm. And they will serve it on a roll with bacon and some plum jam and some cream cheese. And all that combines into an incredibly rich, like, hangover banishing experience. That's good. That's good. Anyway, Abba rules. And, uh, like, I feel like that's... Maybe it's just me, but I feel like people don't know. I feel like that's something, like, you know that feeling where, like, everybody, like, you really get it in your teens and 20s, but you feel like everybody around you, like, knows they're in on it, and you're Mm -hmm. not, like, you missed the day in school where they taught you how to balance a checkbook and do taxes and pick out health insurance and become a functioning human. It's like, that's also the day that, like, they told you, like, hey, ABBA has more songs than Dancing Queen, and they fucking rule. I feel like it was a secret kept from me, and I'm upset about it. There was a post-class tutorial where they're like, hey, Groove is in the Heart's a really good song. Yeah, <laughs> Groove is in the Heart is a good song. I do have a little bit of wariness about D-Light because of their conflict 
with Space Channel 5. I'm sorry, I'll need you to elaborate on <laughs> this Israeli-Palestinian conflict of pop music. Please tell me about this. Lady Miskir sued Sega because she felt that Ulala, the lead character of Space Channel 5, which is a game where you play as a swinging art deco Apple Store future news reporter who needs to save the world from invading aliens by dancing so hard that you catch on fire and meet Michael Jackson was based on her. (laughs) I'm looking at it and she may not be wrong. Although... I mean, I feel like it's spurious. You know, like, I don't even think it's a Captain Marvel Superman situation. Yeah, I mean, it also could be that, you know, Seika has the entire country of Japan and all of its culture to pull from as well. Yeah. And I think there's some convergent evolution happening there. I did not know that Lady Miss Kira's real name was Kieran Kirby, which is a very comic book name. <laughs> so it's a combination of Kieran Shiak and his rabbit. Although apparently she claims that Sega had offered to pay her $16,000 to license her name, image, and songs for the game, and she rejected them. But she did lose the lawsuit. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a messy situation. Well, I, w- I would say she'd be doing okay, except for I did, at Record Store Day, find the one of, what, I think it was one of 2000 edition 12-inch single on pink vinyl of Groove is in the Heart. And I did not buy it because it was $57. Wow, that's a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. And I I told myself after many Record Store Day visits, because I've got a stack of records next to me, and I always pick stuff where I'll either know I love it or it'll be a conversation piece. And I'm like, I would get that because I know I love it. But then I realized how the 12-inch single is like the worst form of song because it's like you have the same amount of time to put a record on as you would for an entire album, but you have to be back there in like two minutes. (laughs) And have to do the whole yeah. thing over again. Yeah. I've honestly thought about getting into like getting into records, but like it's not it's not gonna happen. Like it's just not gonna happen. They take up so much room. They do take up so much room. As much as I, I like physical objects, like I, I am still of that generation. I'm never gonna be the guy who hunts down Japanese imports of D light songs. No, I'm not that guy either. I've always been like, I will occasionally look at something and go, this is a thing that I may never see again in my life, and then I'll buy it. Like looking at my record shelf, it's mostly just music I like to listen to. And there's a special thing, and I'm gonna, gonna, sorry guys, I'm actually putting on my 80s old man plastic framed glasses and my sweater vest and stepping into my carpet slippers as I say this. But there is a certain thing where if I'm gonna buy a record of an album, I want that album to be an album that I can leave on and listen to in its entirety because that's how you do with a record. So if I've got people over Mm -hmm. and we're like, you know, having food or having some drinks, I want this record that I'll be able to put on and leave on. And that's a weird kind of Venn diagram for albums because there are some albums with some great songs on them, but I would not be able to leave on the whole thing. Like I think the most recent album that I bought on vinyl, like modern album. I bought Sia's This Is Acting because, oh my God, that is an incredibly cohesive album for all that it was written for different people. Chris, have I, I mean that? Oh, there you go. No, I'm still here. I'm, I'm enjoying listening to you talk about your record philosophy. Yeah, and like, or The Postal Service, Give Up by The Postal Service is also an incredibly cohesive album. But then you've also got ones where it's like that there's that one track and it's usually like on track seven or track eight. Like it's never, like your hit single is never track one. Never, ever. Yeah. Because you need to put it far enough into the album that somebody will listen to the rest of it to get to it, but not so far that they give up in frustration. Right. I'm trying to think of, like, what the last, like, top-to-bottom bangers-only album I got. I mean, obviously, it was Emotion. Yeah, totally. Obviously, it was Emotion and then Emotion B-Sides. 
uh, <laughs> because Emotion has three of the best songs of the decade, possibly four. But yeah, Emotion, 1989, Emotion B-Sides, Run the Jewels, Run the Jewels 2. Those are like, those are recent <laughs> albums that I would say like all the way, like top to bottom, pretty solid. Speaking of which, I was so happy to hear Run the Jewels in that Black Panther trailer. So happy. Yeah. Hey, here's something, just so you know. Yeah. And I am not saying this as a writer who has worked for Marvel Comics. I'm not saying this as because I have no information about how anything is going to, to wind up on the media side of things. Mm-hmm. Black Panther is going to be awesome. Yeah. And Thor Ragnarok is going to be awesome. Just a heads up so everybody knows where I stand on that prediction. When, I think, I forget who it was, someone said to Ali, hey, ask Chris about who Carl Urban is playing in Thor Ragnarok and watch if he tears up. And I couldn't help it. I decided to be a bit of a jerk, and I grabbed a picture of Scourge from Transformers. I saw that. And threw it in there, and I was like, yeah, it's this guy. And the dude completely didn't get it, and he's like, no, no, it's Scourge. And then posted a picture of the executioner. I'm like, yeah, dude, I know. I know. I saw that. I did, in fact. He stood alone in Calibru. It's enough. Yeah, sometimes people try to explain things to me, too, and <laughs> I don't, I'm not a fan of that. But coming back to Run the Jewels real quickly. I still haven't heard three. I still haven't what? heard Run the Jewels three. I'm behind. I like. Here's the thing. I haven't listened to like. I haven't just sat down and listened to music in a while. Because I like mm-hmm. like. Usually I have a podcast on. Because if I don't, I I fall behind. And then that's the hole you never get out of. And you end up with like 50 back episodes or something, and you go, "All right, I have to make a decision to like unsubscribe and resubscribe." Yeah, exactly. I, I like. I'm really excited about hearing Kit Walker talk about. No, Kit Walker is the Phantom. Kit from Jim Jam. Also named Kit Walker. Oh, former guest of the show, Kit Walker. Yeah. Okay. I thought that was right. Yeah. We've, I've talked to Annie about how she has the same name as the Phantom. Anyway, like I'm really excited about hearing Kit Walker talk about Bionicle, but like I got 103 episodes of the Star Trek The Next Generation podcast I got to get through first. Also that Kit Walker episode, we also talk about more than meets the eye. So I think you should actually listen to that one. Look, that's very good. Like, honestly, one of us mentioned Transformers. I can't remember who. And we dropped down a hole that we never quite crawled out of for the rest of the episode. Like, we were discussing comparative Beast Wars designs. And, like, yeah, we went deep on that one. See, I'm kind of glad that I never got into that as a kid. You know, like, Mm -hmm. that wasn't my kid thing. Because it's too much. It's too much. Like, the, like Transformers, the sheer amount of it is staggering and overwhelming to me. Like, the, the fact that I got into it, like, as an adult when the best stuff is happening is good. Is very good, I think, for me. Yeah, because here's the thing. Because I was one of the kids that had the Transformers videotapes. I had three of them. Transformers 1, 2, and 3 which my dad had taped off the TV because Transformers would come on before I got home from school. So he would tape it for me and he would tape Gem for my sister and alternate on the tapes, which is how I knew enough about Mm -hmm. Gem to follow the Gem Jam without having to rewatch it. But I would then watch those tapes all the time through to high school, through to university, when I had a VCR in my dorm room. And I would just watch them and I knew all the old commercials. And what I found is in the burgeoning internet, there was tons of Transformers content of just like people talking about the toys, people talking about the fiction. And I went and connected the dots on the old Marvel comics that I really didn't like all that much because I also I had like issue three, issue seven, and issue 20 because that's how you read comics when you're a kid. What I found is that later when I was working in a call center doing, you know, tech support and account inquiries for internet connections is I discovered TF Wiki. And so I could just fall down a rabbit hole and learn everything about that stuff because like you said there's so much information out there there's so much content 
of like, you know, you can contrast the five-part Headmasters fake season four they did in generation one with the Headmasters anime that came out concurrently and was completely different. Then when Beast Wars came out when I was in high school, I was like watching it secretly and not telling my friends about it because I was a cool 16-year-old. And, you know, it wasn't cool to be watching kids shows then. And so every time a new thing would come out, I would secretly watch it. And saying that, Transformers Prime suffered from a lot of problems in its later season. It's the best Optimus Prime, and I will fight anyone who says differently. So it's this idea where you can pick and choose what you want from this big universe. Like, I liked Transformers Animated, even though the first season sucked. Because later they got in some really cool stuff, and they created Bulkhead, who's one of my favorite characters, and he's carried over into other fiction. The hill that I will not die on is the Michael Bay movies, because they suck. I've only seen the one, and I did not care for it. I saw the one in the theater, and I liked it because I was in a crowd full of fans, like the kind of fans that would applaud when Optimus Prime's truck first turns up. And like, that's a good environment to be in, to see something. You're going to be predisposed positively to anything you see in that environment. Yeah, but see, here's the thing. The one I saw was the third one? Oh, no, 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 sir. Yeah, that was for a long time. That and the the 86 movie Mm -hmm. were the only pieces of Transformers media I had ever experienced. See, Chris... You realize when you guys did the 86 Transformers the movie on Movie Fighters, you, you put our friendship in jeopardy. It's very bad, Lucas. I'm sorry. It's very bad. It was the first movie I ever saw in the cinema. I was like four. I mean, like, that's fine. Like, you, I, I did a lot of stuff when I was a baby that, that is very regrettable. Okay, here's the thing. For stuff you enjoy as a baby, and that's still good as you're an adult, there are two things. There's Applesauce, and there's 86 Transformers the movie. It, no, see, the, the, <laughs> the fact that you would compare the 86 Transformers movie to, to an Apple-based product is about to put our friendship in jeopardy. <laughs> By the way, you're the reason that when I went to L.A. for the first time, and our hotel was right next to a Trader Joe's, I went in and bought Honeycrisp apples, so that's your fault. Hell yes. Hell yes. There was also a jug of, of Honeycrisp apple cider, which was amazing, and we mixed it with spiced rum. Yeah. And ate it with some roast turkey-flavored potato chips and in what I call the taste of the season menu. That's a, good, that's a good taste of the season. Here's the thing about the 86 Transformers movie. The soundtrack is amazing. Yes. The soundtrack is like genuinely staggeringly good. Mm-hmm. I don't know why Dare doesn't get radio play to this day. I say Dare is better than The Touch, and The Touch is all anyone remembers from that movie. It's the dancing queen of the Transformers movie. Hang on one second. I believe my wife just brought me a homemade funnel cake. This is not a <gasps> snack situation based podcast. This, this is just a treat. Hi, Aiden. Lucas says hi. Hi, Lucas. So I'm going to eat this funnel cake while we do the rest of the show. You're going to get some good mouth sounds. How about that? Excellent. Get some ASMR content. Snip some scissors while I eat this funnel cake real quick. <laughs> also, Australian listeners, funnel cake is a fried dough food that you normally eat standing up at a state fair. It's literally just fried dough. Yeah. You literally pipe dough from within a funnel into a fryer, and that is the methodology, and hence the name. They're also sometimes called elephant ears, which is weird. That is strange. Although I do come from a country where one of our national delicacies is beaver tails, which is essentially just like funnel cake dough in like a paddle shape that they drop into into a fryer and cook and then cover in like maple syrup and powdered sugar and stuff. Sounds good. And it's amazing, mostly because where you buy it is on the Rideau Canal. Now, the Rideau Canal is a, a bit of water that runs through the nation's capital of Ottawa. And famously, it freezes solid in the winter and you can skate on it. You can skate through the entire city. Like you start at the river and you can go all the way up for miles and miles and miles 
And what they do is, for the equivalent of food trucks, is they wheel these big things on, like, pylons, what look almost like boxcars. But in fact, they serve, like, hot chocolate, and they serve beaver tails. And so it's like you're freezing, and your nose is cold, and the tip of your ears have gone numb, and you're on skates, and you're handed, like, a paper plate with a chunk of fried dough the size of your face covered in powdered sugar and lemon. And you eat it, and you, like, it's transcendent. It's amazing. Sounds good. I was about to say, you're not going to reply because your mouth is full of funnel cake. All right, let me get one more bite and we'll continue our discussion. All right. This is all staying in. Mm. This is going to be the loosest episode of the show ever. Good. <laughs> that is excellent. I love my life. So yeah, Dare is great. Dare's got that like really good intro mm-hmm. bit that you keep waiting to come back in the rest of the song and it never does. Very good. And also, in the movie, that tracks up to the ultimate kind of kid fantasy of I'm best friends with a Transformer that turns into the coolest car on the planet and will hang out with me and go fishing and then drive me home as this music blares out of a stereo, which is like the 80s dream. Yes. Oh, and also that car is Judd Nelson. Yeah. That movie sucks, though. (laughs) (laughs) That movie's very, very bad. That movie is a bad Star Wars Yes, it is. And the thing is, when the minute you point out the Star Wars parallels, also, you got to point out that G.I. Joe the movie, which is also amazing and you're also wrong about, <laughs> came out this, like very close to it. And they both involved like a spiky thing being shoved into someone's eye. Like the spiral ship goes into Unicron's eye and Galobulus like takes that worm timer thing straight to the eye. And I remember looking at that and going, wow, someone at Sunbow hated eyes. Yeah, G.I. Joe the movie also sucks. <laughs> Like, it's also very bad. And, like, I like look, I'll give you that I was never a Transformers guy. I'm pretty hard into the G.I. Joe. Oh, yeah. Like, I got plenty of frame of reference for that stuff. I got plenty of nostalgia. Uh, and that movie, that, that gold-plated goof-off Lieutenant Falcon. Pythona infiltrating the Technodrome is great. And it also is about 20 times better animation than anything else in the rest of the movie. Yes. That scared me when I was a kid. The bit where she, like, pulls the foreheaded snake out and it eats through the electric fence as it, like, flickers across her alien face. And it's like, that's scary as hell. I want to know why the G.I. Joe movie didn't have a banging soundtrack. Yeah, it didn't really have... Like, it was just score, right? I don't remember any proper songs off of it. It does have the legitimately great version of the opening theme that has, like, the Cobra verse. The music video version where they attack the Statue of Liberty for no reason. Yeah, that shit's dope. Yeah. It's very, very good. And another situation where the animation budget goes through the roof and everything just looks amazing. If that movie was, was five minutes long, it'd be great. Yeah. What, what was the name of those little bubble ship things that Cobra had? Like Where it was just like... Uh, those were the trouble bubbles? Uh, so, yeah, the trouble bubbles. So when Snake Eyes flies out of trouble bubble, grabs the edge of the windshield, flips it 360, dumps the guy out, and ends up flying it. And I'm like, that's so fucking cool. That's just like... Yeah. Just perfect. It's awesome. Tell you what, ABBA should have done the soundtrack to G.I. Joe the movie. Brett White decided to live tweet G.I. Joe the movie, and he and I got into this incredibly deep conversation about how great it was, partially in defiance of you, but also partially because, it's, it's to me, it's a really great movie. And it, I was shocked how much that is in my head. Like, talking about how Beachhead, as a drill instructor, is insane because he's doing tests with live bombs and live ammunition. That's not... Okay, look. That's not crazy, though. Because you're not... They, nobody's getting off the bus and joining G.I. Joe. 
<laughs> like you've you've been through you've been through basic if you're if you're showing up uh, along with Big Lob and Chuckles. You've already got a speciality, you know. If you're Tunnel Rat, you've already been through enough things to be called Tunnel Rat. Exactly. That's what I love about Cobra Commander. Oh yeah. Because see, Lucas, Cobra Commander is a guy whose big idea. Hang on. As you eat cake. Cobra Commander is a guy whose big ideas for world domination are things like, I want to steal Alaska. <laughs> and I'm going to put nuclear bombs at every McDonald's. That sort of thing. Like, mm-hmm. that's where he's at. I'm going to burn all the paper money in the world. <laughs> Those are his ideas. But he is so effective at them. Like, there is a chance that if he goes... If, he, if Cobra Commander wakes up in the morning and goes, I want to steal Alaska... There is such a big chance that he will be able to steal Alaska, the state, (laughs) that they needed to get the best army guy, the best navy guy, the best marine, the best ninja, the best coast guard guy, the best air force guy, the best diver, the best military policeman, the best dog. They needed to get all those guys and put them in one branch of the military to stop him from burning all the paper money or (laughs) using magic perfume to take over the minds of foreign governments or creating a new island like or taking over the airwaves with cold slither yeah yeah it's cold slither worked cold slither was like they did it and it's not even subliminal the lyrics of that song can you imagine if Somebody came out with a pop song today that was, I mean, God, you, like, look, you might have to cut this out, but I want to make this point. Can you imagine, like, somebody dropping a single and having the line, do not resist because ISIS is strong? Like, because that's basically what Cold Slither is. Yeah. Like, that's basically Cold Slither, the actual lyrics. Do not resist because Cobra is strong. It's a terrorist organization bent on world domination. (laughs) Determined to rule the world. But coming back to, to Law and Order, and you mentioned the best MP and the best dog. That is Law and Order. And the guy's law, and the dog, dog is order, order, which is genius, which is some Jeff John shit. Yep. So they put him in a bomb-finding exercise, which is like, that's awesome. Of course, real police and military dogs are trained to sniff out explosives. And so they're like, all right, find the bomb and defuse it. You've got five minutes. And so he sends the dog to find it, and the dog <laughs> finds it and brings it back. And it's a ticking bomb. <laughs> and Beachhead is getting really mad, not because he's bringing back a bomb, but because using a dog is cheating on the test. And Law gives the line, which is drilled into my brain, which is, hey, man, Law orders a team. He finds the bombs. I drive the car. We tried the other way, but it didn't work. <laughs> That's good. That's awesome. And then Beachhead is then struggling with this dog. Like, when you give a dog a soft toy, and he's, like, pulling on it and growling, and Beachhead's like, give me the bomb, you idiot. We're all gonna die. And so then Law gets the bomb and throws it, and it explodes maybe 20 feet up in the air. And at which point my adult brain kicks in and goes, oh my god, everyone was gonna die in this exercise. Yeah, dude. Gee, I don't fuck around. Do you want Alaska to get stolen, Lucas? (laughs) Is that what you want? Because if that's what you want, then feel free to fuck around. This is G.I. Joe. This is serious. I still say, because Big Lob, who is like if Rich Little was also Michael Jordan, and Tunnel Rat are in an exercise where they have to run an obstacle course and get to the end and ring a bell. And Big Lob runs it normally, and Tunnel Rat looks to the side where there's a culvert, and he basically crawls the tunnel to the end, shoots out one turret, and wins. And I'm like, I'm sorry, that's some Kobayashi Maru shit. You should get higher marks for that. He's very good. But instead he fails, because Beach has the worst. 
Talk about Wayne Arsneeden. Is that who you're talking about? <laughs> he wants a stone cold righteous attention. I didn't look that up, by the way. That shit was off the top. That that was off the dome. <laughs> Here's my favorite thing about Law and Order. G.I. Joe already had a guy with a dog on the team. <laughs> they already had Mutton Junkyard. Yeah, but it's a different kind of dog. Which means that, like, even if we didn't see it, like, Mutt and Junkyard were so effective that somebody, General Flag, was like, we better get another dog in here. Look how good this dog is. Snake Eyes got a dog. There's three dogs on G.I. Joe. Two dogs and a wolf. Also, we skipped the part where Chuckles, who wears a Hawaiian shirt to the war, because why the hell not, is in a missile launching vehicle and misses his target. And so he picks up a missile and runs screaming at it and throws the missile into it and blows it up. <laughs> Again. Amazing. Are you here to fuck around or not? <laughs> and then Beachhead tells him, next time, use the rocket launcher. And you see Chuckles go, like, have a face like, but shit, that never occurred to me. Yes, yes, next time I will use the rocket launcher. The same Chuckles who later is hanging onto a Chinook helicopter on the top and shooting with a handgun at insect and plant-based air forces. That movie rules. I'm sorry, Chris. It just rules. If that movie, look, if that movie was, I, I will say about that movie what I have said about the insane clown posse. If it was any good, it would be amazing. <laughs> if it was any good at all, it would be fantastic. <laughs> of my childhood G.I. Joes, one of my favorites was Bazooka, and I lost him in my backyard once. You like that mustache? No, it was it was the uh, the football jersey and the helmet. And he just looked like he looked ridiculous compared to a bunch of other soldiers that I had. And so it was just like, who is this guy? I, why is he called Bazooka? Because he didn't come with the Bazooka accessory or he did and I lost it because I was six. You lost it. Yeah, I probably lost it. What happened is I later lost him I, like, when I was playing in the backyard in the dirt. And my dad found him because he was mowing the lawn and Bazooka got sucked up into the lawnmower and got his leg chopped off below the knee. And so I kept the toy because he's Bazooka. See, that shit sounds like a Cobra plot. We're gonna make a big old fucking lawnmower and drive it over the pit. But my dad actually made a little crutch for him so I could still stand him up. Oh, that's adorable. Some top level dad stuff. All right, well, we're probably reaching around the one hour mark if you cut out the early stuff. No, I'm ready to, I'm ready to keep going, man. What else you got? All right, that's good to say. We're... About? <laughs> You're re-energized with your funnel cake. Yeah, man, it's got a lot of sugar on it. <laughs> All right, what else you got? If we can step away from the uh, unappreciated genius that is G.I. Joe the movie. You watched that, uh, you watched that uh, Castlevania? Yeah. Not yet. I, I wanted to ask you, because I saw it come up, and I'm like, Chris Sims will have an opinion on this. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Is it a good opinion? That show is extremely frustrating. Uh-oh. <laughs> that show is maybe the most frustrating television-watching experience I've ever had. Because I first heard about that when I was on Warren Ellis' mailing list. <laughs> like, his, his email list. He announced he was working on it, which means I was working at the comic book store, which means this is like 2009 or 2010 that I heard about this. So cut to seven or eight years later and it finally comes out. It very clear, like the first season is up now and they they announced like, oh, it's coming back for a second season with twice as many episodes. And I'm like, no, it had a 12 episode first season and you've only gotten four done and decided to put it out to see if it was worth continuing. That's what happened. That's absolutely what happened. And I know this because it's based on Castlevania 3, which famously has four playable characters. Mm -hmm. By the end of episode four, they have assembled three of them. Uh 
and they have not gone to Castlevania. So if that is the first season of the Castlevania show, that's a bad season. That's a real, real bad season. <laughs> Once they finally like start doing Castlevania stuff, I think that show gets really good. But it is as Warren Ellisy as it could be. It's like a it's it's almost to the point of like being a parody of Ellis. Like if Wizard had a video game magazine mm-hmm. in the late nineties and they were like, What if Castlevania was Transmetropolitan? Oh what? <laughs> yeah. Because Trevor Belmont shows up in the, like, second episode. That's another thing. I, I think he might show up halfway through the first episode. But whatever it is, we get the intro, which is a Dracula intro that ties into, like, Symphony of the Night. And is not as good as the intro to Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is the best Dracula origin story. Because he stabs a church. Because Dracula becomes Dracula by getting so mad that he stabs a church. And the <laughs> church bleeds. Yeah. It's brilliant. But we're introduced to Trevor Belmont. And Trevor Belmont's drunk and gets in a bar fight. And then when he's, like, squaring up to the guys, he goes, I used to fight fucking vampires, which is the most Warren Ellis way to introduce a character. Unless it was someone saying, I met God and I killed him. Yeah, like, I always think about, like, Warren Ellis's first issue of Thor, which opens up with a naked man getting out of bed and lighting a cigarette and going, I bloody hate America. <laughs> which, that was, th- that was an issue of Thor. <laughs> Thor. But yeah, like, it's, th- there's one where he's like, ugh, stone-eyed golems, God shits in my breakfast again. And it's like, <laughs> I know you're having fun, and I'm glad you're having fun, but like, this is, this is a too much. <laughs> Honestly, that line could be one of those lines off the Warren Ellis tweet generator from way back when. Yes, yeah, that's the thing, it super could. I am actually looking up to see if the Warren Ellis tweet generator is still alive. Oh, talk like Warren Ellis. There it is. Good night, my little porn chimpanzees of the Twitter net. There you go. I mean, I would not have been surprised if someone said that in Castlevania. (laughs) This actually reminds me, and I have a question for you, Chris, because you read a lot of comics, right? Yes, I do. And you read a lot of comics that are classified as capital I important. Uh, I have done so, yes. So, my question for you is, when you get someone... Because the thing is, your, let's call it a dislike of Neil Gaiman, is kind of legendary to anyone who's listened to every story ever. I don't actually have a dislike of Neil Gaiman. I don't know where this rumor started. Oh, no, I'm not saying of Neil Gaiman. I'm sure he's a nice guy. I'm talking about that you're you're clearly not, not a fan of his every story is about stories kind of work, which then again, there's Grant Morrison, but hey, let's move on. Talking about Warren Ellis kind of reminded me. I think it's... I'm not saying that all comics creators go through an arc where, you know, they start a hero and they last long enough to be a villain, but they kind of last long enough to become almost a pastiche of themselves. They become known for their thing, right? Mm -hmm. If you read Warren Ellis now versus Warren Ellis when he was starting out, it's like there are going to be strains that line up. And like you said, there is something that is a Warren Ellis-y kind of story or lines or something. Mm -hmm. So in your mind, is there a creator that either doesn't suffer from that or maybe transcends that a little bit. Who can stay fresh versus who can iterate or, you know, you can, can you get what I'm saying? Everybody's got good ones and bad ones. You know, everybody's got a stinker in them. And I say this like, look, I like Warren Ellis. I love a lot of Warren Ellis comics. I think it's hilarious that like the attitudes and a lot of the dialogue of Castlevania, a show based on a video game where you fight movie monsters, culminating in Dracula, that built up a very, very self-important narrative and continuity based around a thing where you, you know, like, what if you go into a castle and fight Frankenstein and you have a whip like Indiana Jones? Like, that's the genesis of Castlevania. The fact that characters in that are functionally indistinguishable from characters in The Wild Storm 
I think is hilarious. <laughs> Gaiman is a guy that I'm... Like, I like a lot of his comics. There are some of his comics that I think are, like, really, really bad. What happened to the Cape Crusader being one of them. I think he loves to, like, he gets caught up in, like, stories about stories. Because I think that's interesting to him. And I think it can be interesting. It's just not interesting to me, like, the fifth time I read it. But there's a lot of stuff I like. I like American Gods, uh, the book. I like Sandman a lot, too. I I don't think Sandman is, like, the best 90s comic. It doesn't have Adam X in it, for one thing. (laughs) But I think, like, people fall into patterns. They write things they like. And Ellis is a guy that I think it's easy to point to as that, because I'm someone who's read a ton of Warren Ellis comics, and he's someone who has been more open about his creative process and his inspirations than anyone else, I think. Like, I, again, I was on his mailing list. Like, he had a mailing list where, like, every day he would, like, tweet out, like, hey, this is a thing I've been reading, this is a thing I think is cool, this is a thing I'm working on. And that's, like, a really interesting level of transparency that also kind of makes it easy for you to draw patterns while still getting excited about his work. As far as who doesn't do that, longevity in comics is... It's a fickle mistress because there's an idea that, you know, you can't go home again in comics. Like, do you want to see Mark Wade go back to Flash? Like a book that he wrote for 10 years, and it was amazing. But at the same time, do you want to see Mark Wade go back to Captain America? Because he's gone back to Captain America twice, and it's about to happen again, and I'm pretty fucking stoked. But I like all those books. When I think about someone who doesn't get old, who's been around forever, because we have to look at people who are like of the generation that at least goes back to the 80s, because that's Gaiman, that's Morrison, that's Miller, that's Moore, the ultimate fall from grace story, Frank Miller, the ultimate crabby old man story, Alan Moore, the ultimate this is getting too weird story, Morrison, the ultimate, you know, stuck in the pattern story, Gaiman, of that crowd. There are a couple people that I think like are as fresh today as they ever were. And number one is Stan Sakai. Stan Sakai is an unstoppable master craftsman in comics. Unbelievably good. The problem is that he's only really been doing the same thing, which is itself impressive. Which you'd think it would be a pitfall, right? I mean, you're telling Usagi yeah. Ojimbo stories forever. You'd think you'd fall into like a bit of an also ran pattern, but nope. Nope, they're still good. Real good. They're still good. And then the crazy thing is, like, you look at what's considered to be the best Usagi Ojimbo story. Grass cutter. It's not that different in quality from, like, Usagi Ojimbo stories from 12 or 15 volumes later. But Grass Cutter, if you line all of Usagi Ojimbo up, Grass Cutter is volume 12. So it was at least as good as it is ever going to be 12 volumes in. 12, like, major story arcs in. Who else does that? Who else has that good a run? where they can get to volume 12 and hit a new peak. And it's not like volumes 1 through 11 are bad. And it's not like volumes 13 to 30 are bad. And you could argue that, like, there's better stuff. Dueling Kid Noji is fucking rad, (laughs) you know? There's so much good stuff. And it's such a complex narrative. By the way, I just looked it up. The first volume of Usagi Ujimbo came out in 1987. That book is 30. Yeah, that book's 30 years old. This is the 30th year of Usagi Ujimbo. And there's not a bad one. That's amazing. I think he's a guy. He's a member of that crowd. Matt Wagner, I think, is another one. I think it's easy to, like... Like, the joke you can make about Matt Wagner is that he writes fan fiction about... Like, he writes self-insert fan fiction, right? He made OCs out of all of his friends. And then kind of just happened to do one of the best comics of all time. 
which I can say as someone coming to Mage from the outside because I heard you guys recommend it. Yeah, I was not expecting that to be what it was. And at least Mage the Hero is discovered the first one? Discovered is the first one. Yeah. Defined is the second. Denied is the third that's coming out now. Yeah, I opened that first one and I'm like, wow, this is this is different than I expected. And I think like anyone who's listened to War Rocket Ajax knows you guys value the second over the first. You think it's a better story or it's higher on the, the list. Well, I think that that is probably purely something to do with age mm-hmm. and personal tastes because the first story is very 80s black and white boom. I think you can only get it in color now, but in those original issues, it's a black and white comic. It's from Kamiko, you know? It is the black and white 80s boom book along with Usagi Ojimbo and TMNT. Mage the Hero Defined is a 90s image book. So it's creator-owned, but it's also like kind of flashy and adventurous. There's more of an adventure element, action adventure element. It's more super heroic. The first three pages of Mage the Hero Discovered, Kevin Matchstick sits down in an alley and talks about how he has anger management issues and pushes people away and doesn't have love in his life first three pages of mage the hero defined he fucking fights goblins with a magic baseball (laughs) bat you know like it's it's a different kind of story that i think still has that same emotional core like it's still very very good but i mean i think if you look at stan sakai you've got one core work to look at and he's done other stuff you know he's he littered grew which famously is a book that we're just too young for, I think. He's done bits and pieces of projects here and there. But when Stan Sakai is like in the encyclopedia, it's Stan Sakai, creator of Usagi Ojimbo. Like that's his his ongoing masterpiece. Talk about Matt Wagner. Matt Wagner worked on Batman. Matt Wagner worked on Trinity. He did Zorro. He did The Spirit. He's done a lot of different stuff in between what I consider to be like his career-defining work, which is, is Mage. Uh, you know, he did the Doctor Midnight prestige format miniseries that very few people read, but is actually like really awesome he's been involved in comics in superhero comics specifically like in really interesting ways and i remember like i remember when i met him and he was doing free sketches and i gave him my sketchbook and he i could tell he was already picturing how he was gonna draw batman (laughs) in the sketchbook because that's i'm sure it's everybody and i was like can i get kirby hero from mage and he was like yes and i got an amazing kirby hero (laughs) probably because i was the first person that day who didn't ask for batman those Batman books, the Dark Moon Rising books, are the best non-year one, year one stories. They're great. They're really amazing. His Batman works beautifully. The third guy is Walt Simonson. Yes. Who did the best run of superhero comics ever in the 80s, did other amazing runs of superhero comics, did some bad superhero comics, and then kind of in the 90s and 2000s and in today just like keeps kind of like, he's a worker. You know, he's a workhorse. His Thor run is definitive, but when he like came back to Thor, the mythological character with Ragnarok, like Ragnarok's a completely different story, but it's beautiful and it's got an epic scope and it's a completely different kind of Thor story. The Judas Coin is an amazing book from someone who's literally 30 years into his career, 40 years into his career, maybe at that point as a comics artist, to get something like the Judas Coin, where it's not only like a really good story and it's not only like a story that kind of goes through the history of the DC universe and through the history of comics and is told in different ways. And there's a segment of that story that's told as a newspaper strip. There's a segment of that story where Simonson tries to do it as a manga. So you get to like see what this weird, like, you know, 60 year old man who's been working in American comics thinks manga is like. That's an incredible, like, again, Judas Coin was super overlooked, but it's an incredible piece of a creator remaining vital in his fourth decade of a comics career. You've got that. 
you've got, you know, Manhunter from the 80s, which is incredible. Like, anyone else, Manhunter would be the best thing they'd ever done. Like, even Archie Goodwin, Manhunter was the best thing he ever wrote. It's incredible. You know, Simonson did that. He did Thor. He did Star Slammers. He did Orion. He did Fantastic Four. He did 10 issues of Avengers that are not good at all, <laughs> leading up to <laughs> Avengers 300. But that's the thing. In between there, you've got stuff like the World of Warcraft comic that I feel was not up to par. And you kind of have those moments where you're like, is Simonson kind of losing it? And it's, No, of course he's not. He's still amazing. It's just that, like, he's done enough work and he's been on so many books. You know, nobody ever really talks about the Simonson Wonder Woman run where it was like Walt Simonson and I think Jerry Ordway, which is a weird team to put on that book. And it's not fondly remembered. But around the same time, maybe a little bit after, he does Orion, which is very much in the spirit of Thor and very much in the spirit of Kirby and very much like full of, of really good ideas. So like, those are like the guys I would go to as people from that crowd of kind of the third generation comics creators, right? Or the fourth, I guess, because you have the golden age guys. Then you've got like the Marvel era guys in the 60s and 70s. You know, you've, you've got your Roy Thomas era, like the first generation of creators who grew up reading comics. And then you've got the 80s and 90s guys who are the guys who come from them. Like, the guys who descend from Thomas, from Claremont, from Buscema, from Barry Windsor Smith. Like, you get the guys who come after. You get the Larry Hamas, the Christopher Priests, the Simonsons, the Dwayne McDuffies. All those guys who were, like, around in the 80s and coming up and into the early 90s where you've got... When we were doing X-Men 2, we talked a lot about Fabian Nicieza and Scott Lobdell and, and the Cuberts and how they're a weird generation of comics creators because they're learning from Chris Claremont, who clearly learned from Stan Lee. <laughs> who who knows where he learned to write dialogue. <laughs> so of that era, like those are the creators. And, and there's there's more, you know, like I hate that we're only really talking about a bunch of white dudes and Dwayne McDuffie and Larry Hama, like and mm -hmm. Priest. I wish we were talking, like I wish I had the depth of knowledge to talk more about like a Colleen Doran or a Trina Robbins. Like I wish I knew, like I had the depth of knowledge to talk about creators like that. But like coming from like a like a superhero standpoint and like going back to the people who were around at the same time as you were starting to get like Sandman and Animal Man and when Watchmen was such a big success that they were like, who else is in England? What else you got? Bring it over. Give that copy of 2000 AD and hire everyone in this. <laughs> that copy of Warrior. And also, honestly, John Wagner is another one. Again, 40 years in comics, still doing dread stuff that's as good as it ever was, building continuity. Like Before we get too far from Walt Simonson, I just need to point out, I googled something to just double check it before I said anything about it, but I'm looking at some of his Alien the Illustrated Story stuff, which, by the way, was written by Archie Goodwin. Yeah, dude. And I'm just like, this is... Archie Goodwin's also the reason there was a four million year war in Transformers. Wow. But yeah, sorry, I was momentarily distracted by these huge Walt Simonson pages of a weirdly red alien, but it still looks amazing. I mean, Walt Simonson, like, it's so weird to look back at a comic like Robocop versus Terminator and be like, oh, this is Walt Simonson and... <laughs> I had that game on Genesis. It was awesome. Yeah, like, that comic rules. <laughs> All right, Chris, well, we probably should start wrapping it up, but I have one last topic for you that I'm going to let you go on. All right, hit me. I know I'm convinced on this topic. But I would like you to tell my listeners why they should read Jack Staff. Oh, because it's the best superhero comic ever published. Because I know you're going to have the vocabulary on this that I don't. Because I heard you mention Jack Staff on Ajax. And there was a sale on. And so I went and I got, like, Soldiers and a few arcs after that. And that comic's amazing, and I don't have the vocabulary to explain. So, go on. Let's hear why. It's the best superhero comic. I don't, like, <laughs> like that's it. <laughs> 
I am convinced of this. In my mind, it is unquestionably the best. Jack Staff speaks the language of superhero comics more fluently than any other comic book I have ever read. It speaks it so fluently that it can introduce concepts and characters and situations that would take other creators, other books, an entire issue in a panel. There is no other comic that conveys the feeling of the very, very complicated things you're reading in a way that is so effortless that you don't even notice it's explaining it to you in the way that Jack Saff does. There are layouts in that book that it would not occur to anyone else to do. There is a use of empty space. There's a use of black space on the page that reinforces a narrative structure in a way that I don't even understand. <laughs> the sequence that I always point to, and I, I wrote about this when I wrote about Jack Staff the last time, the sequence where John Smith, who is, you know, the builder, who is secretly Jack Staff, arrives at Alfred Chenard's house. There's a panel like that takes about three quarters of the page, and it's John Smith walking through the front door. The walls are not drawn. There are paintings on the walls that are drawn so that you know where the walls are. Otherwise, it's an entirely blank space, because this is when the book was black and white. So it's just an entirely white space. Then there's a trapdoor, and Jack Staff wakes up in full costume in the underground lair of Alfred Chenard, alias the spider, in a web, like literally a web. And like a lot of things in Jack Staff, it uses that empty space. Only this time, the empty space is black. <laughs> the ruthless efficiency of contrasting the open, airy, sunlit foyer of that house or foyer of that house just by virtue of which color you're using for background and which color you're using for foreground who else could do that paul grist is an amazing storyteller i truly believe he is the best pure storyteller who maybe has ever worked in comics hang on one second i gotta go over to my special shelf special shelf is where i keep all the good books special shelf got thor on it too <laughs> special shelf has thor herbie copra Akewood, Cal Stark's books. Those are available on the special <laughs> shelf. Yeah. That's what Paul Gris can do with two colors, with only black and only white. And then, like, the rest of the book is, like, that efficient, that ruthless at storytelling, that fast. Pages are used in ways that I have never seen them used elsewhere. It's astonishing that's on top of it being like a very good adventure story because it's like jack staff is essentially the events of jack staff if i described them to you they would sound like interesting stories years ago like 20 years ago the government basically had a guy they had turned into the hulk and they lost him in this town and he basically leveled the town before he was stopped by a superhero and then the superhero vanished but that guy was vaporized and went into the water supply, so everyone else in town is becoming a Hulk whenever they get mad. People are having unexplained, like, violent blackout rages 20 years later because of this incident. That's interesting. That's a cool story. And, and, and now that same superhero has to track it down and stop it. But how is he going to fight a guy who is dispersed into an entire town? You know? That's a cool story. That's a great setup with, like, a, a twist. And again, it speaks the language of superhero comics because you know what the Hulk is. You know, like, how the Hulk works. You don't make him angry. The fact that it is an interesting story that is then told in the most interesting way possible, non-linearly, with flashbacks and pieces and bits and pieces of stories that are revealed to you in different eras through the viewpoints of different characters. Because the book's called Jack Staff, but the viewpoint characters... 
there's like six there's six viewpoint characters following a narrative in each story there's Jack Staff, there's Becky Burdock, Vampire Reporter, the greatest character in comics. <laughs> Bramble and Son, Vampire Hunters. Helen Morgan. There's Helen Morgan and the Agents of Q. There's Detective Maverick and Sergeant Zipper Nolan. Like <laughs> Tom Tom the Robot Man. Oh, that's what I usually tell people when they ask me why they should read Jack Staff. It's because it's the only comic with Tom Tom the Robot Man in it. Tom Tom the Robot Man is not a robot or a man. <laughs> <laughs> that's what's brilliant. Tom Tom the Robot Man. It follows all of those characters, and it's never confusing. You never lose the narrative thread, because it's so efficient and so good at giving you every piece of information that you need in ways that allow you to put the narrative together when you don't even realize the narrative is split. It's brilliant. It's the best. God, I want to read it again right now. It's also, like, as someone coming into it with no knowledge of it, also the fact that every bit of the story, whenever it changes viewpoint characters, it's like three pages. And you get an intro whenever that character comes back. So there's never that moment you get with sometimes with a new comic where you're like, oh, who's that guy? Is that the guy who was... No, because when Bramble and Son Vampire Hunters turn out, they get their own title card and a little introduction. The only thing I can compare it to is it's that radio drama thing of, meanwhile, in this location, this person is doing this thing. And you get that every time. And it just so in those little three-page chunks, it drags you along in the story where other things you might want to linger or slow down. It's like, oh no, you got that little bit and a little bit, and so you end up reading the whole thing. And then the druid shows up. <laughs> it's a full page, by the way, that intro where he's walking into the spider's house. And it's just door, the rug, paintings on the walls, and boxes and paintings leaning against the walls on the floor to suggest the dimensions of this room. That's all you need. You would never look at that page and go, where's the backgrounds? Because everything you need on the page is there. Like, even the door. He doesn't even finish drawing the door. You don't need it. <laughs> he gets to the point of exactly what you need on a page and stops drawing. <laughs> there's no unnecessary information. It's incredible. Yeah, there's that one dream sequence, or sort of mental minefield sequence, where Helen Morgan is, like, put in a coma. And, again, that black space is used to be like, oh, she's traveling between rooms, and she moves in a spiral and drops down to the bottom of the page. And because it's all on black... It's like there's no panel gutters. There's nothing that would be stopping you or telling you which way to go. You just follow her eye movements and her action like a Norman Rockwell painting. Yeah. You know, you start at the top corner and you follow everything around the page before you go on. It does the trick of having to turn the book because like a character will fall in such a way that makes you rotate the book. Which is also something that Sandman does, and not to tie this back into Chris Hates New Game, which is not true. But this book does it better than Sandman. And that, that Helen Morgan sequence where the book is black and white except for the green, that one page where it's Helen Morgan and young Helen Morgan, mm -hmm. and they're like kind of at, like yin-yang positioned. And it says, this is Helen Morgan, the enigmatic leader of Q, the investigators of the unexplained, the question mark crimes. And one day she dreams she's Helen Morgan, a 15-year-old girl trapped in a coma who wakes up to find she spent six months dreaming she was Helen Morgan, the enigmatic leader of, <laughs> of Q, the investigators of the unexplainable, the question mark crimes. And one day she dreams she's like, it, it's written in a circle. Yeah. And then the next panel is the logo for the question mark crimes and the caption, don't you just hate dreams like that? <laughs> yeah, there are four comic books off the top of my head that I can remember picking up a physical copy and shoving it at a friend. And as I explain it, kind of slapping it with my hand and going, look, look at this, look at this. And Jack Staff's one of them. Sandman Overture, the first issue where you've got J.H. Williams III doing these incredible like double page encompassing layouts where every word balloon is worked into the shape of the thing 
where every panel is a tooth in someone's mouth and you look at the whole page and it's a smile. And because Chase Williams is fucking great. Chase Williams is great. Yeah. Mike Allred and Laura Allred drawing the Silver Surfer in that new Silver Surfer run where the Kirby crackle is interspersed with halftone dots from the four color printing process. Mm -hmm. So whenever he uses the power cosmic, he's actually bending the comic book so the dots get bigger. And that's great. I love that. Jack Staff is one of those where it's just you look at it and you just know something special is happening. Yeah, it's they don't make them better. They've yet to make a better one. And on that note, I think we should wrap this up because the recording is about to hit the two hour mark and I'm going to have to edit this down at some point. Yep, you got a, you got a lot to edit and I got a chunk of funnel cake left. No, no. Funnel cake is staying in. So, Chris, if people wanted to find your stuff on the Internet, where would they go? Mm, come on, sorry. <laughs> Go to the kitchen and get some phone cards. If people want to find my stuff, they can go to the-isb.com. That's my homepage. It'll have links there to things that I write on the internet, as well as comic books that I write that you can buy. And it would be great if you did. If you could buy some of those comics, that would be super swell. Or if you just want to give me money. Like, if you, if you see me on the street, you just give me money. That's also fine. Speaking of giving me money, there's also links there to the Patreons that I do to support podcasts that I do, like War Rocket Ajax and Movie Fighters and Sailor Business and Xena Warrior Business, the very fun podcasts that I spend a lot of my time doing. So check those out and go to your local comic book store and get books like Deadpool Bad Blood or Sword Quest or Ash vs. Army of Darkness or the All-New Guardians of the Galaxy Annual 2017 or X-Men 92. That's still out. That's all in paperback. You can get the whole thing. They're very fun. Volumes 1 and 2 have a big tonal shift from Volume 0 in retrospect. <laughs> yeah, that's the stuff that I do. You should go get them and give me some money. I'm going to sit here and read <laughs> Jack Staff again and try and get even close to this good. Yeah, I still couldn't believe that we talked about Army of Darkness on your last episode. And then like a week later, it's like, hey, Chris Sims is writing Army of Darkness. I'm like, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't say it. It hadn't been announced yet. <laughs> that is like a thing that I loved when I was a kid. So it's I'm very excited about it. As what you should be. All right, Chris. Well, I suppose we'll wrap this up. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been a wild and wacky adventure. You can go and read Jack Stack now. Thanks. I'ma give it to ya with no trivia. Roll like cocaine straight from Bolivia. My hip hop will rock and shock the nation like the Emancipation Proclamation. We give MCs approach with slang is dead. Them eyes are running to the wall and bang your head. I push a force, my force you're doubting. I'm making devils cower to the caucus mountain. Well, I'm a sire. I set the microphone on fire. Rap styles vary and carry like Mariah. I come from the Shaolin slum and the ally I'm from is coming through with enough niggas and enough guns. So if you wanna come sweating, stressing, contesting, you got Thank you very much to Chris Sims for his time. For Chris's signature cocktail, I enlisted the help of former guest of the show, Aiden Sullivan, who just happens to be Chris's wife, to do a tally of the booze they had left in the house so I could make something to suit what they had left over from the wedding. And what they had was some bourbon, some Prosecco, and a bottle of Snap Liqueur I'd sent them as a wedding present. Keeping in mind Chris's love of Honeycrisp apples, not to mention our earlier discussion about how Transformers and applesauce are things you never grow out of, I present the Honeycrisp Bellini. Find a champagne flute. In the bottom of the flute, add one ounce of bourbon and a dash of snap liqueur. Then add a heaped tablespoon of applesauce. If you don't have any applesauce in the house, you can put three apples into a blender, along with a teaspoon each of sugar, lemon juice, and water. Top up with Prosecco and stir with a spoon. It's the perfect drink for an afternoon on the couch having a gold-plated goof-off. Enjoy!
The Math of You is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, and Lokified82 on Snapchat. If you have a few dollars and would like to directly support the show, you can head on over to patreon.com slash lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month. Or you can pledge like 50 bucks or a thousand bucks. I wouldn't stop you either way. Those who pledge get early access to episodes, physical mail, cursive tweets, and I would just really, really appreciate it. If you want to support in a non-monetary way, you can head on over to iTunes in the country of your choice and leave a five-star rating. You can also leave a review and I'll read it out on the show. Won't that be nice? If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. You can go to bit.ly slash themathofyou, with capitals at the beginning of each word, to see a playlist with every song I've ever used going back to episode one, including this song. It's The Tiger by ABBA. The playlist is updated every Wednesday as soon as the episode goes live, so subscribe to get that new music in your ears. Next week, it's a very special event. In order to mark the August 15th release of the Double Clicks Love Problems, it's the return of Angela M. Weber. Hope you survive the experience. Join me, won't you? Then we'd be in good shape. Absolutely. And I'm going to look it up because I had a really great Twitter conversation. I think it was... I think it was... was I'm trying to remember. Hang on. I will look this up. Eat, Eat some more funnel cake. You're good. No, I'm eating it right now. <laughs> I know what a, I know what a cue is for this is going to be a minute. <laughs> ah, here we go. So yeah, <coughs> you're right. <coughs> Breathe, Chris. Breathe through the funnel cake. <laughs>